0: You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN.
1: I'm Anderson Cooper in New York.
2: And I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. This is our 18th CNN Global Town Hall, coronavirus facts and fears, and it's being seen around the world on CNN International, CNN Español, and streamed on CNN.com.
1: We start off tonight in a very bad, yet totally foreseeable place. The experts warned it could come to this, and now, sadly, it has. Cases today crossing the 4 million mark in this country. Not so long ago, it was 15, not 15,000 or even 1,500 people. It was 15 people. And the president was saying it would soon be zero. Instead, tonight, it is 4 million plus.
2: And the pace of growth is also accelerating. It took 99 days to reach to a million confirmed cases, 43 days to go from 1 to 2 million, 28 more days to add another million. And, Anderson, we've gone from 3 to 4 million in only 15 days now.
1: The the president spoke late today, made no mention of that milestone or the 144,000 of those 4 million plus, 144,000 people in this country who have now died. He did, however, cancel a portion of the Republican National Convention in Jacksonville, Florida. No real surprise there. New deaths in the state, 173, reaching yet another daily high. He also continued his push for classrooms to reopen without uh, really a national plan. And just moments ago, those revised and delayed CDC guidelines on the subject came out. We've been going through them. We're going to bring the very latest on what they say and what has changed. You'll Remember, the president said that they were too tough before uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, too impractical we we'll talk about all of this tonight with Bill Gates, whose foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, is supporting promising work on vaccines.
2: And we're going to be taking your questions as well. So will Bill Gates tweet them to us with the hashtag CNN Town hall or leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page?
1: Uh, a lot of you have sent in uh, questions in video form. You can see some of them up on the screen right now. and We'll get to as many as we can tonight with Bill Gates. We'll also have reports from across the country, from the White House and the breaking news from there, as well as the ballpark, where baseball is back for the first time. We start with where we are right now. More than 144,000 people in the United States have died of the coronavirus. The CDC is estimating that number will surpass 150,000 in the next three weeks.
3: It's so important to get the message out. We're still at the beginning of this pandemic.
1: 23 states in the country are seeing a rise in their numbers. Texas saw a record number of deaths this week, and hospitalization rates are up across the country. California now has more confirmed cases than New York. Officials there are still considering a widespread stay-at-home order. White House Task Force Coordinator Dr. Deborah Birx warns there are alarming increases in 12 cities across the nation. There are other cities that are
0: lagging behind that, and we have um, new increases in Miami, New Orleans, Las Vegas, San Jose, St. Louis, Indianapolis, Minneapolis, Cleveland, Nashville, Pittsburgh, Columbus, and Baltimore. So we're tracking this
1: very closely. Burke said aggressive steps are needed to control the virus. At least 30 states now require wearing masks in public. Social distancing and masks remain key as we wait for a vaccine. And officials say there is progress on that front, even if a vaccine proves to be effective, public health officials warn this virus may never go away.
4: I think we ultimately will get control of it. I don't really see us eradicating it.
1: reality check from Dr. Fauci. Uh, Sanjay, where do you think we stand tonight?
2: Well, Anderson, even though these last five months have felt like five years, uh, we are still very much in the early days. And look, the pandemic is picking up speed. Uh, One professor described this pandemic as a large ship. When a large ship like that first starts to move, it can be relatively easy to stop. But as it gains speed and it gains momentum, it's harder to stop even if you slam on the brakes. So it's going to take more extreme measures now, and it is going to take patience. One of the more alarming things we heard today was that the CDC is now saying COVID-19 will be among the leading causes of death in the United States, just behind heart disease and cancer. But more deaths from this than diabetes, Alzheimer's, and stroke. Imagine that for a disease that didn't even exist in humans until the end of last year. And despite all that, we still don't have nearly enough testing. Instead of doing surveillance, we are just now using tests to point out spots in the country where there is bleeding so we can try and apply some pressure to the wound. Anderson, I was in the operating room this week, and and despite the fact that we could do brain surgery on someone, we could get all sorts of tests ahead of time from coagulation numbers to a CT scan, we still couldn't get a COVID result fast enough. Meaning all of us, surgeons, nurses, anesthesiologists, we all had to use up PPE to try and protect ourselves. That is no way to stop a pandemic. Finally, Anderson, we we know the mental health of the country is also increasingly fragile. Last year at this time, one in 15 Americans reported they had depression. Now they say it is one in four. So it's tough all around on all of us. Uh, But Anderson, I gotta tell you, you know what makes me happy? Uh, getting these pictures that you send every now and then, that, that really does bring a smile to my face, and thank you for sharing them.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's Wyatt. He's, he's uh, cute. Yes, he has no idea of anything that's going on outside, and I'm very happy about that, but he's, uh, yeah, that's my favorite picture. He's, <laughs> he's really quite adorable. Um, he smells like milk. Like I feel like he's so full of milk that, like, if he got accidentally cut, it would be milk that cut up. out. <laughs> right. um, yeah. Uh, he is but,
2: a curious, adorable boy.
1: Yeah, my favorite is. is waking up and, and like, getting to his room in the morning to be there when he wakes up, because that's, it's, it's there's nothing better. Anyway, well, thank you, Sanjay, I appreciate that. Of course, thank you. Uh, more now on the President's announcement today, that the Jacksonville, Florida portion of the Republican National Convention will not be happening. CNN Chief White House Correspondent Jim Acosta joins us now. So, Jim, uh, let's talk about how this came about, because originally, again, it was supposed to elsewhere.
5: Yeah, Anderson, I think some of this started on Monday. The uh, the sheriff down in Jacksonville, the local sheriff uh, announced to uh, that community down there that he did not have the resources available, the staffing available to police essentially and provide security for uh, this Republican convention down in Jacksonville. And I talked to a, a convention official earlier this evening who said uh, the, the sheriff making that announcement and uh, that sheriff being tied. Uh, to uh, local politicians in that area who also had concerns about this, uh, that some of those concerns were being relayed to Republican officials down in Jacksonville. That was being communicated up to Washington inside the Trump campaign and over to the White House. And I talked to this uh, convention official earlier this evening, Anderson, who is describing a scene of chaos, saying the situation is chaos inside the RNC right now after the president pulled the plug on Jacksonville. Uh, saying that there are some staffers who are down in Jacksonville who don't know what to do now. They don't know whether they should go home, whether they should go to Charlotte, where uh, the Republican Party and the Trump campaign were planning to have uh, delegate meetings uh, for the Republican Party around the the nomination of President Trump for a second term. Uh, And in the words of this convention official, Anderson, uh, this is a, quote, multi-million dollar debacle. And who knows where that money could have gone? Uh, This convention official essentially saying they've spent millions and millions of dollars on hosting this event in jacksonville it could have been better spent on perhaps fighting against this virus
2: yeah, jim did, did they say what the rationale was really for moving it
5: well the president had this news conference sanjay over here at the white house earlier this evening and he was saying that you know he uh just could not in good conscience uh, have a, a speech and a party down in jacksonville uh given all of the health concerns uh but truth be told sanjay and, and you know this we've all been following this for for weeks now The president moved this event down to Jacksonville because uh the uh, officials in charlotte north carolina where the convention was originally supposed to take place were not bending to the president's wishes to have a big splashy convention in the middle of the pandemic and so the president really put himself in this position he's been his own worst enemy at times in fighting this virus he wanted this down in jacksonville florida and then that state became as you know sanjay just one of the biggest hot spots in the country Mm -hmm. with cases surging and so the president had to pull the plug but talking to this convention official earlier this evening this is a very uh, depressing move by the president because they were getting eager uh, to to have this party for the president. Now they can't do it. But Sanjay and Anderson, one thing I will tell you, talking to this official, and I think it, it is pretty telling, uh, there are officials uh, inside the RNC who weren't even sure they were going to show up for their jobs down in Jacksonville because they were so worried about this virus. So this this really spun out of control for the president. Jim Acosta.
1: Appreciate it. Coming up next, uh, Randy Kay, who is in Florida where the convention will not be. Uh, let's talk about the situation in, in Florida, Randy.
6: It's pretty bad, Anderson, so it's no surprise that uh, the president would cancel that, uh, that convention. Uh, 10,249 new cases and a record number of deaths, 173, we are reporting today. That brings the total to more than 5,500 deaths here in the state of Florida. And we're getting word just yesterday, a nine-year-old girl becoming the fourth minor to die from COVID. Uh, We have two 11-year-olds, a 16-year-old, and a 17-year-old, and now more than 25,000 minors, those under 18, infected with this virus. Also statewide, 9,400 people hospitalized. 15% of the ICU beds are left. That's all we got and 54 hospitals are without any ICU beds at all. Uh, Also, 51 hospitals around the state requesting more medical staff. In fact, 2,400 nurses have been requested in 12 different counties. And in Miami-Dade, the worst hit county of all here in Southern Florida, the positivity rate is 20%. About 2,000 people are hospitalized in that county. And Sanjay, they have completely run out of ICU beds. They're now converting regular beds to uh, ICU beds in in the hospitals there.
2: I mean, yeah, it's tough to find the space. And where, and where are you, uh, Randy? Are you in, some, in front of some sort of stadium there? What's, what's going on there?
6: <laughs> I'm at the uh, Fit Team ballpark. You can probably see a little bit over yeah. my shoulder here. This is where the Washington Nationals actually do their spring training, but it closed up here in March. They packed their bags. The National Guard took it over and turned it into a testing site. We actually were here uh, earlier and got some video of people coming here and getting their tests done. They tell us they've done about 30,000 tests here since March, since they turned it into a test site. But it's not just the long lines that we saw. It's people here in Florida uh, waiting two and three weeks, some of them, for getting to get their test results. And that just can't continue. The governor today saying that he's going to start these uh, self-swab lanes. There's already four of them. These are expedited lanes. He's going to open another four by the end of the week. But then he's also talking about maybe hopefully opening these priority lanes for healthcare workers, people who have been exposed, the mm. elderly. But a lot of people are wondering, well, why are we still talking about that? Why haven't we done that? We've been spiking now since June. And, and in fact, just very quickly, I spoke to this one, I was in contact with the mayor of uh, of Holly Hill, Florida before coming on the air tonight. Uh, Chris Via, he's been waiting 16 days for his test results, a mayor in Volusia County. He finally just went to another lab and got tested. He couldn't wait anymore and he's pushing the governor to open some of these Priority lanes in Volusia County. He's hopeful that it will happen.
1: Mm. Still talking about testing. I mean, it's just it's extraordinary that uh, you know. And waiting the idea of waiting two or three weeks for results. And we'll talk to Bill Gates about this. But you know, he was on months ago talking about this, saying you know a delay like that it just it means the test is kind of meaningless because you've spent two or three weeks interacting with other people and, and maybe you've been passing on the virus. Just as training camps are adapting, so are ballparks. This is the opening day for Major League Baseball, no people in the stands. Down in the field at National Park in Washington, a well-known fan of the field throwing out the first pitch. Take a look.
2: And now one of the more well-known Washington National fans, Dr. 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 Anthony Fauci, to throw out the first pitch.
4: Your pitch.
3: Dr. Anthony Fauci
1: Dr. Fauci thrown out the uh, first pitch. I'm no sports expert, but looked a little wide to me.
5: A little wide, a uh, little low yeah.
1: in the ground. <laughs> I've heard it's really hard to do that, though. Um, I have a friend who did that, and yeah, I it heard it's really hard. Uh, the, he's threw out the first pitch. He was invited to the stadium, no longer invited to attend the president's briefings anymore. Neither he nor any of the scientific authorities permitted to be in a position to correct anything the president might say at what used to be the uh, daily coronavirus task force briefings. Dr. Fauci's Presence of the ballpark obviously says something about where we are at the moment. So does the fact that just today we learned that one of the Nationals' young star outfielders, Juan Soto, has tested positive for the virus. As as Tom Foreman is at the ballpark for us tonight. Tom?
3: Hi, Anderson. You rarely see the ceremonial first pitch and attempt to walk the batter. But nonetheless, that's how it went. This is the strangest opening day for Major League Baseball ever, frankly, and this will be the shortest baseball season since the 1880s. They're only going to play 60 games, which is about a third of the season. The goal here is to keep most of the teams playing in a general region, so there's not a lot of travel. There will be all sorts of health protocols. Players will be checked for COVID every two days. They will have temperature checks every day. They will not be allowed to mix it up on the field. There's no spitting. There's no high fives. And even though you heard some noise there when Dr. Fauci was throwing out the ball, there are no fans. Mm -hmm. Fans are remote. There are cutouts of fans in the stands, and people at home can use their computers or their phones to tap an app to indicate if they like something or don't like it, and sound will be piped into the stadium to give a sense of how fans would be reacting. But as I said, no matter how you do it, the strangest opening day of baseball we've ever seen. That's,
1: and, I,
2: yeah. and I should point out as well, I, th- I think the, the NBA <clears throat> and the NFL <clears throat> excuse me, are also uh, preparing to return to play. Uh, the NBA is talking about this bubble approach. What, what are you hearing about those other precautions, Tom?
3: The bubble approach is really a, a novel idea. Basically, they're saying, let's get everyone together down there at Orlando. Let's sort of screen everyone in safely. And then let's keep them in a sealed sort of screened environment while they all play against each other in a limited forum, basically, and, and in doing so, with teams that were selected because they had a chance of being playoff teams, will winnow it down, move toward a playoff, and have an NBA playoff if, if nothing goes wrong and they don't have some breakout of the disease that drags it all to a start, stop. The NFL is even more complicated. They have a little more time till they would start uh, in September. But the problem for the NFL is they're still talking about having teams travel in their typical 16 game season all over the country, going to different places, playing in different stadiums. And it's not clear what the protocols will be in each stadium Yeah. for right now. Going into camp, one of the most famous players out there, Tom Brady, the quarterback, showed up today. He was tested for covid. That's step number one for everyone coming in. There will be repeated tests, repeated senses of are you safe before you can even start mixing it up with other players. But for the NFL to pull off the kind of season they want to pull off, that is a tremendous reach right, right now.
1: now. Tom Foreman. Tom, thanks very much. Coming next and for the bulk of the rest of the hour, Bill Gates talking about vaccine research and other ways of stopping the spread of this virus. Taking your questions as well as our CNN Global Town Hall continues in a moment.
0: After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
1: This is our 18th CNN global town hall. It's obviously happening in a far darker place than anyone would have hoped. More than uh, 4 million Americans have so far been infected.
2: More than 144,000 lives have been lost as well. And back in 2015, Our guest tonight foresaw a pandemic like this one.
1: Yeah, now through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and support for vaccine research. Bill Gates is helping to lift the cloud that we're all living under. He's co-chair of the foundation, which is on the forefront of the battle against HIV, malaria, neglected tropical diseases, and now COVID. Bill, thanks so much for for being uh, back with us. It's been four weeks since since you were last uh, with us in these town halls. More than 20,000 Americans uh, have died uh, since then, Uh, Since we last spoke, uh, this disease, a million and a half more have become infected in in that time. It's certainly clear we're in a worse place than we were back then four weeks ago. I'm just wondering to you what stands out right now in terms of where we are in the trajectory of this.
4: Well, the infection rate in the U.S. is deeply troubling because the summer, when it's warmer, when people are indoors more actually it's easier to reduce the infection than it's going to be out in the fall. And right now, those infections are largely in young people, which means uh, the death rate, although it's come up, uh, is nowhere near its peak. As those infections cross over the generational boundary, uh, which with this level of infection, uh, there will certainly be some of that, the death rate will go back up. and. So, we're in a very tough situation uh, globally. There are many countries now uh, that are in their first wave. And for them, where they're a lot poor, that's very difficult. South Africa, India, really large numbers there. Uh, so, you know, things are definitely on sort of the bad side of what we would have predicted four weeks ago.
2: You know, when you were here uh, in May, Bill, th- there was a study that we talked about. It came out by researchers at Columbia, and it basically said if we had shut down just two weeks earlier, it would have prevented more than 80% of infections. So, you know, for example, instead of 4 million now, there'd probably be fewer than a million. And we didn't do it, obviously. Uh, but, but I think the question now, looking forward, is did, did we learn the lesson I mean, nobody wants to shut down again, but do we need to shut down at least some parts of the country? How do you balance the public health versus economy sort of back and forth now six months into things?
4: Well, there are certainly some activities that the benefit they provide versus the risk of infection means they're, you know, probably shouldn't be allowed uh, for the rest of this year until the numbers get way, way down going to bars. Uh, in fact, if, I joke, if people went to bars and they didn't talk, uh, it'd be okay. They'd just sit quietly and drink. Uh, but you know, restaurants, uh, public gatherings, um, we should have uh, clamped down on those even more at the time we opened them up. And people said, hey, your cases are increasing, so you can't be opening up. And people hoped Uh, that we'd get away with that because people like to come out, but we didn't, in most parts of the country, we didn't get away with it.
2: Four days after the first person in the United States was confirmed to have died from coronavirus, which, which wasn't too far from Microsoft headquarters. Back then, Microsoft told their employees they could work from home. Uh, it was just one patient at that point and that was a big decision I imagine do you know what was the company's thinking and, and will that will they be allowed do you know to, to continue to work from home?
4: Yeah I was part of those discussions and uh, you know we were saying wow no one's gonna go into work they're all just going to be at home and I realized I that was a natural thing to do once, pandemic hit i hadn't thought about okay how much work will they be able to do you know which of course is, is the internet and the software tools uh that's worked out better than i would have expected that is for office workers including programmers uh the lack of productivity from being at home is not very high it's a little tougher for new employees uh, you have to work hard to get the camaraderie and, and make decisions. But uh, I think those office workers will be amongst the last to go in. And so there's no known date for either the, the foundation employees or the Microsoft employees to go back right now. Uh, I haven't been in either of those offices uh, since that, that day in March where we said, wow, no one's going to go to work.
1: Do you think it's going to continue like this? Not just, I mean, for the foreseeable future, in terms of you know, until there's a, a an effective uh, vaccine, effective treatment. But I mean, there are a lot of people predicting the death of American cities, uh, the the death of office life as as we know it.
4: Yeah, I wrote a book a long time ago called The Road Ahead, where I said people cities would be less dense because uh, people would do digital working and uh, up in. Till recently, that trend was the opposite of what I predicted. Cities mm. got more and more vibrant. I don't know how we'll strike that balance when we get out of this, but the, there, are, there are three innovation tracks. Uh, innovation and testing, which is still way behind and much worse than people think, because if you don't get the results within 24 hours, it's basically a useless task. Innovations in therapeutics, and innovations and in vaccines. And so we're in a race here to get those things uh, uh, quickly uh, because if, if we didn't have innovation, I would not feel that good about uh, mm. where this is all headed because people's willingness to change distancing, you know, it seems hard. Uh, we just haven't had the message, the leadership in this country like. Uh, many other countries, uh, including some like Australia that you know, aren't that different, or Germany that isn't that different, uh, that have, have really done a great job.
2: You, you, you mentioned, uh, well, I thought it was really interesting, just the productivity you say didn't really necessarily uh, go down, at least for established employees. I'm just really curious about that. I don't know if you heard the president's remarks today about online learning uh, versus in-person learning. Just take a quick listen. I got a question about this.
5: One study estimates that due to school closures last spring, the average student will begin this school year roughly 35 percent behind in reading compared to the typical year and more than 50 percent behind in math.
2: It's been a big question I've had. And I, my wife and I talk about it all the time. I mean, how much of a of a gap is online learning causing versus in-person learning? You heard the president I mean, 35, 50 percent behind. Is this something we have to accept or do you think technology will improve and the education will improve?
4: Yeah, the president was reading uh, from a report there uh, and it's 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 absolutely valid. The what you see is this gigantic disparity, which is that the younger the kids are, the worse online works for them the less resources their school has, so inner city schools versus suburban versus private, and the less that the teachers were given time to prepare for online, uh, the worse it is. And so I absolutely feel that younger kids, inner city kids, as we're thinking about what should resume, uh, that should be a very high priority. There are actually private schools that, Uh, Had experimented with online. Whose kids have internet? Who you know they've got a place in their home. Uh, They are able to deliver most of the learning, and you know so those schools aren't suffering the same deficit. So it strikes along the same lines Mm -hmm. of inequity that we see in almost everything in society. uh,
1: The the CDC just released their new guidelines. uh, For viewers, the president had said that the other ones were too tough, um, uh, too expensive. Uh, I I think you would want tough guidelines, but that's another matter. They've released now new ones for reopening schools. And in it, they state, quote, there is mixed evidence about whether returning to school results in increased transmission or outbreaks. Do you think that's true, Bill? I mean,
4: is is the evidence mixed uh, on this? The data from South Korea where they studied 56,000 cases, and the data from Israel, where they open up the hospitals, the high schools, is quite negative on this. On the other hand, the Nordic countries, uh, who tracked it quite well, who had a very low level of virus infection at the time they do these reopenings, and they started with the youngest kids, they didn't see that same connection. The real problem comes is as an infection gets uh, connected to someone who's older. So if the teacher's uh, over 65, if that kid lives in a multi-generational household where it's not easy to separate the kid from the older person, that's the part of this that does create real risk. Now we have this huge benefit of having those kids in school. And so this is gonna require some judgment. It's not gonna be close all schools or open all schools there are various things about having half the kids go in uh, one week and then half the other week so you can space kids out and things like that there are things that are will be tried there's a lot to be learned from the way that europe did it europe didn't just go back to normal school activity they went to modified uh approaches uh i'm glad to hear there's likely to be some money for schools on a bipartisan basis in this next bill because funding some of that and uh, spreading best practices there will mean we can reduce the education deficit.
2: And, and it's worth pointing out as well that I mean, if you have a lot of virus circulating in your community, regardless, I mean, that, that's a problem. Even if kids don't necessarily transmit as much, it could certainly add fuel to that, pan, you know, that, that viral fire there.
1: Well, let's talk about the vaccine t- timeline. W- w- what are your thoughts now on the vaccine um, and just in terms of, I, I, think I heard you say something elsewhere about maybe needing multiple vaccinations that it wouldn't just be like a one-time vaccination. Can you just explain how you see this?
4: Okay. None of the candidates, uh, that we have much data on look like they'll work with a single dose. Uh, so these are all multi-dose vaccines. And as we really look at the effectiveness in the elderly, uh, Uh, Some of the constructs may require even more than two doses to get the kind of protection we want. The vaccine has to do three things. It's gotta be safe, it's gotta reduce transmission, and it's gotta protect the health of the individual. And these vaccines, the FDA laid out uh, how they want these trials to be done. Fortunately, they required a proof of efficacy but they set the bar pretty low. They set it at 50% efficacy. So the first vaccine that gets approved uh, may be fairly weak in some of these criteria. Uh, our foundation is funding a, a, not only the first generation of vaccines and the capacity for those, but also a second uh, generation that uh, will be re- ready, you know, four to six months later, that may get us closer okay. to 100, 100- protection or 100% transmission reduction. And so there's a lot of uncertainty in the vaccine enterprise, which is hard to explain uh, when when people want to summarize, hey, is the vaccine miracle on its way? Uh, The phase threes are about to start. Uh, They've defined a criteria uh, that is about infection plus symptoms that's a bit different than the two goals. And so the error bars for uh, how impactful that vaccine will be are still pretty high. Um, you know, with the right safety profile, absolutely getting that out will be the beginning of, of the end, particularly if we get it to the right people and we get it out to the whole world.
2: You know, part of the reason we, we we want to talk to you as well is obviously you're someone who is funding one of the biggest vaccine efforts out there. And I'm curious, when you're having conversations uh, with people, you know, within these 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 institutions, what are the conversations about, and what steps are you you taking as a large funder to ensure that that you're going as fast as you can without compromising the safety of the vaccine?
4: Well, the the speed, a lot of that will relate to building factories in advance and building them before we know uh, which vaccines will succeed. With vaccines. Uh, the factories are somewhat different depending on which construct it is. Sadly, you can't just build a generic vaccine factory, and so you know the discussions with AstraZeneca, Johnson and Johnson, uh, Novavax, Sanofi about okay, can you have factories not only in the U.S. that the U.S. actually has done a good job funding, but some in Europe, some in India, uh, make sure that that we're going to get out there. So that a big part of this. Uh, for us is making sure these vaccines work uh, for everyone we 're even doing fun, helping to fund trials in South Africa to make sure that you know when you 've got a population that 's got different diseases uh, more malnutrition and you know, more HIV is the vaccine you know as effective there so the getting the trials done uh, is big and then having those factories and having resources as yet. Uh, The money to uh, buy this vaccine for the poorest in the world hasn't been assembled, although I'm talking with a lot of uh, 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 people in Congress that uh, can that can this, which would be less than one percent of the money, be allocated in this next uh, relief bill. You know, everybody is trying to figure out their life for the
1: next you know not just days and weeks but for what does the next year look like i'm personally trying to wrap my mind around you know i'd sort of had this thought early on that okay well maybe by the fall of 2020 uh you know we're going to be in a very different place it doesn't seem like that and in fact it seems like only in the winter time it's only going to get worse uh, unfortunately so at least uh, it's not going to be helped by, by the weather just personally What is your timeline what do you think the next, does the next year of our lives for the next six months and the next first six months of 2021, does
4: it look like the last six months? Well, I hope you'll view this as good news. I believe that uh, although we started very slowly that the diagnostic scaling up by the end of the year, there'll be some advances that'll get us out of this horrific situation. And you know, we could do better. When you say diagnostic, treatment. you mean the testing? Just the testing. I think that therapeutics is actually the most promising thing and not talked about as much as the vaccines. Because if you have multiple therapeutics that between them are reducing the death rate uh, and the amount of serious sickness by over 80 uh, percent, probably over 90 percent, that does start uh, to reduce the, the horrific burden. Uh, So I think by the end of the year, uh, therapeutics will be making a big difference. Uh, And then as you get into 2021, uh, somewhere in there, uh, you'll get approval by the first half. And then so by the end of 2021, if people are willing to take the vaccine, we'll be able to stop the transmission in the rich countries and maybe Uh, Within nine months after that, in the world at large.
1: Um, We got to take a quick break. Uh, We're going to have more uh, with Bill Gates. Our global town hall continues. He'll going to answer some of your questions as well. We'll be right back.
0: After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
1: We're talking tonight's in Global Town Hall with Bill Gates, with the number of coronavirus cases passing 4 million today in this country and more than 144,000 lives lost here.
2: And we've asked you, our viewers, to send in questions for Bill Gates, and you did, sent a lot of them in. So let's get right to them. Uh, We'll start with Ricky in Florida, who sent in this video. Let's take a look.
6: Based on the learnings and experiences
0: of the Gates Foundation and overcoming the lack of trust that some societies have had in getting vaccines for diseases such as polio... What suggestions or advice would you give U.S. health officials to help them to convince the nearly 50 percent of Americans who say that they would not get a COVID-19 vaccine if it were available today, that it is safe?
2: That's a great question, Bill. I mean, lessons from around the world. I mean, polio, vaccine hesitancy is not unique to the United States. What, what, what would you say?
4: Yeah, the tactic we've had to use in the polio campaign is to figure out people's trust network. Uh, is there a religious leader or a tribal leader that they trust? And then to have that religious leader, uh, they're you know sincerely uh, a believer in the polio vaccine, stopping that paralysis. That they not only speak out about that, but they set an example. In that case, it's a, a vaccine for children, so they give it to their own children in a very visible way. And so when we had a horrific problem with that in Nigeria. Uh, it was teaming up with those uh, traditional leaders that eventually uh, got rid of wild polio uh, in all of Nigeria, which was the last place in Africa. So it's it's reaching out and understanding that that web of trust. And it, you know, required huge effort many years uh, here. You know, we want to convince people at least over 80 uh, percent to take this vaccine uh. You know, next year. So, you know, I hope we figure out who the influencers are.
2: Right. I think a lot of communities are saying right now, who are those trust leaders in our community, our society, whatever. I mean, the other thing that y- you hear is that there's this hesitancy, right? They- they'll get vaccinated, yes, uh, but we're going to wait for the second generation of vaccines to come out because that'll be safer. Uh, what do you say to that? Any validity?
4: Well, when you take a vaccine, you're benefiting yourself in terms of uh, reducing the chance you'll get sick. Uh, With all medicines, there's some risk, uh, very small in almost all cases, but some risk you're taking like, you know, driving a car, doing a lot of things. And you're also benefiting other people because you, the vaccine reduces the chance of your being a super spreader or transmitting the disease at all. And so it is a community-based thing uh, that I hope people, you know, looking at what the FDA has done, and that there weren't shortcuts taken. Uh, there may be pressure. There may have been pressure. There may be pressure, but so far, they're not doing that. Um, they're insisting on a efficacy, lots of testing in old people, uh, and so I do think people have a tendency. You know, to say this is almost like war. We've got to help our fellow citizens. Um, so, you know, I think we'll get the numbers down. Although, when they pull right now, you know, it's almost 40% of people have at least a little bit of hesitation.
1: Hmm. Um, I-, I was reading the New York Times. There, there are 16,000 Facebook posts espousing conspiracy theories about you and the virus. Uh, th- th- these, and I-, I mean, I've seen these things. Uh, they're liked or commented on 900,000 times on YouTube. The top 10 videos that spread lies about you had almost 5 million views. It's also pointed out that according to Zignal Labs, which is a media analysis company that tracks this, misinformation about you is the most widespread of all coronavirus falsehoods. Uh, so there's a conspiracy theory that uh, one, uh, one of our viewers uh, asked about. I just want to play that, uh, that sound.
3: What would you say to the fringe portions of the public, like conspiracy theorists, that seem to think that you're somehow responsible for the outbreak?
1: There's also a conspiracy theory that you're pushing vaccines because you're going to inject people with a tracking device when they get the vaccine. It's all all part of a so-called globalist plot to control the world. Uh, QAnon folks are, you know, which is actually a group that's been targeting me as well lately, they're claiming falsely that I'm somehow connected with Jeffrey Epstein and global cabalists of sex traffickers. It's insane. What, what do you say to people who believe this stuff? Cause I mean, I'm sure you are inundated by, I am by people direct messaging to me, just insane stuff.
4: Yeah. The combination of having social media, uh, spreading, uh, things that are very titillating, uh, to have this pandemic where people are uncertain and, you know, there's they prefer to have a simple explanation. It's meant that these things are really, uh, you know, millions of messages a day. Uh, and people like myself and Dr. Fauci become the target. Often the clever thing they do, you know, our foundation has given more money to buy vaccines to save lives uh, than any group, uh you know, so you just turn that around. You say, "Okay, we're making money, and we're trying to kill people with vaccines, or by inventing something." Uh, and at least it's true we're associated with vaccines. But you actually, you know, sort of flipped <laughs> the connection that we have there. Um, you know, I'm. I hope it doesn't create vaccine hesitancy. I hope you know this whole story of innovation that's going on that we do get the benefit of that. It's really the only. Good news I'm bringing you today is that the Diagnostic Therapeutic and Vaccine Innovation, these amazing private sector companies, uh, without the coordination you would have uh, liked, but they are doing it. Uh, and I do think people uh, on the therapeutic side will be surprised. And you know, these are well-meaning people. You know, This is a time where people are uh, doing great work. And, you know, so I hope the conspiracy stuff dies down. Uh, It's it's really the numbers kind of blow my mind. And it's not just the fringe people that you would uh, normally think of.
1: It's not at all. I mean, I can tell you, I I get stuff from people who seem, you know, they have lives, they have families. I don't know if they genuinely believe this and they've just been misled. But, um, you know, and I. For me, it's you know I, they claim I'm a, I was on Jeffrey Epstein's airplane and going to his island with Tom Hanks, or, or I mean, just just insane, crazy stuff. Um, what do you? I mean, do you think? I know internet companies are looking at, at at this. Do you wish that they would play a role in in taking stuff down, which is as demonstrably false? Because I mean, it does have real yeah, world, pos, you know, it does have real world uh, uh, impact on on vaccines or you know, a nut showing up to a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. with a gun.
4: Yeah, in some cases, they are taking things down. Um, you know, it, it's a bad combination, a pandemic and social media and people looking for very simple explanation. Who's the bad guy here? Um, and a lot of that's been connected to politics. Um, more in the U.S. than in other locations. Um, and you know of course vaccines weren't uh popular with everybody even before this all all started so uh i you know i'm a big believer in getting the truth out and if if but it's it's kind of not as titillating to say you know uh Cooper is innocent uh oh well uh you know that's not as exciting you don't forward that to quite as many people uh as you do the, yeah. um, the,
2: the, the acquisition. Yeah. So, sometimes the misinformation travels faster than the virus. It seems um, let's see if we can get to another question. This one is coming from a, a doctor in Arizona who writes this, our focus and rightfully so has been on the current situation fighting the spread. How much time and resources have been employed to research post COVID health complications and uh, what specific health challenges complications are you most concerned about? Bill, is this something that you've thought about or looked into?
4: Well, certainly our foundation has a lot of biologists because, you know, seeing how this disease progresses, that gives us the clues to which therapeutics are going to stop the disease. And, uh, you know, like many things, like masks, we're smarter today than we were four or five months ago. Uh, there's an element that's the lungs, but it's broad inflammation and a lot of clots. Uh, there's an element that's autoimmune, about twenty percent of the cases, particularly the younger cases. And so we're we're coming up with diagnostics that differentiate the course of the disease. And then you know one of the drugs, uh, the only one other than remdesivir that's really been proven is uh, dexamethasone that our foundation was involved in. That's for that inflammation stage. So it's the late. The late stage of disease. So these understandings are coming. I get you know journal articles uh, four or five a day that uh, you know I don't read every word of, but it they scientists are doing a good job getting a sense of where we need to intervene. Early stage disease, it's clear antivirals, antibodies, cutting down the viral load that helps a lot. As you get to later stage disease, the virus actually isn't isn't the problem anymore. It's the cascade of events. Uh, mostly connected to clotting in the immune system. And so uh, you know, part of the reason the death rate is down is we know to use ventilators less. Uh, they use anticoagulants more. They use oxygen earlier. They look at the Pultox. So the medical profession is, is getting smarter every week, uh, and eventually they'll be armed with the amazing therapeutics. Good
1: question from uh, Cameron uh, from Virginia, which reads, what lessons have you learned from COVID-19 that'll influence how you allocate future funding for pandemic prevention?
4: Well, the goal in 2015, when a lot of people in the global health community, including myself, spoke out was to have practice that we would say, okay, uh, if you want diagnostics, what do you do? Well, the answer is you get the commercial labs to ramp up. Uh, But in the U.S., they actually put a roadblock in front of them, made it harder at first. Uh, and, you know, CDC had limited capacity and even wasn't able to deliver on that. So, the, you know, just like you do war games, uh, you know, getting ready involves going through the scenarios. We will invest, and I know the US government, and other governments will, in having vaccine platforms that get us very rapid results. Likewise, Next time we'll be able to scale up diagnostics ten times faster than this time, and antivirals and antibodies. We'll be able to do those more quickly. So, no, so you think we'll learn the know, lesson? It's sad, it, it's sad that it took this, you know, the, these deaths, the economic pain, the divisiveness. That you know, we we still aren't sure how quickly it'll end. But the R&D priority and the, and the potential to solve these things is absolutely there. And that's why I was excited in 2015 that, if you know, even if tens of billions had gone into these things, uh, this is exactly the kind of thing that could have been stopped before it did uh, significant damage.
2: You you do think so. These lessons, you think, will be remembered? Because it does seem like at times we have a short short attention and short memory when it comes to this. Do you think it'll be memor- or remembered or will they... You think fade away as this pandemic fades away?
4: Well, this, this one will be remembered. Uh and you know, if it happens in your generation, uh it, the priority of this funding, you know, I'm already seeing big, big changes in how people think about this. Medical science, as you know, actually is moving a very good clip. So things like heart disease and cancer, you know, there's exciting improvements there. There's some tough things like uh, diabetes and Alzheimer's, but even those uh, are going well. And our foundation on infectious diseases, you know, we even talk about malaria eradication as a, a thing this generation can get done. So the understandings are improving, the tools will be there. The, a bioterrorist epidemic is more difficult because they'll design a pathogen that's designed to evade the tools that you have, whereas nature. Uh, isn't intentionally serving up things that go beyond what you're ready for. Is this just something that is always going
1: to be with a coronavirus, that this is something that's always going to be with us, COVID-19 particularly, and that we'll just have better therapeutics, better treatment of it, uh, better testing for it, and a more effective vaccine or vaccines that will help prevent us from getting infected, but it's always going to be out there?
4: Basically, yes. There, are, there is a disease, smallpox, that we completely eradicated. And it's amazing. I was looking at the flu data. The flu is down in the southern hemisphere now. They, they are seeing dramatically less flu than ever <clears throat> because they took the steps uh, to stop coronavirus that also yeah. uh, tend to stop flu infection. So it, it is incredible. whether Which diseases are worth driving to zero or not? Uh, is always a question it's very expensive to get to zero for polio and smallpox uh, it those for those diseases it makes a lot of sense but we'll have crossover diseases for a long time and we just have to catch them early before they go exponential you know SARS um, you know was tragic but in a very minor set of numbers mm-hmm. Ebola we took our polio team and they uh, all the personnel in Africa went after that and stopped it from getting out of the three countries. And so the numbers there also uh, were not not that dramatic. So it should not be a dramatic burden on human health if we're alert. Um, You always worry that it'll start in a country with a very bad health system. So you worry about Africa. Here with China, even though, you know, you will debate uh, how quickly they moved. At least, you know, once they really saw it, they had the capacity uh, to, you know, share the virus yeah. and, and, and take dramatic steps, which when Ebola breaks out in Africa or other pathogens, it can a bit longer
1: yeah. before it's clear. Well, you, uh, you leave us with some hope tonight of better therapeutics, uh, you know, better testing by uh, the end of, of this year, uh, and then uh, vaccines in multiple stages. That's something that uh, makes me uh, hopeful, and which I wasn't when we started this night. So I, I appreciate you being with us as always. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bill. Thanks. Our global town hall continues in a moment.
0: After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned.
1: Sanjay, I want to thank you as always. I want to thank Bill Gates for giving us not only his uh, time to answer our questions, but also uh, our viewers as well. Thanks to those of you who wrote in with your questions. If you didn't get your question answered tonight, the conversation continues at cnn.com coronavirusanswers.
0: And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts.
5: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN Flash Talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.